men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The text continues in verse 40, and with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Well, they were immersed. The word baptize means immerse. It was transliterated from Greek, baptizo, that means immerse. They were immersed. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food 
with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Lights, please. Such was the beginning of the first church, the beginning of the church. Everything we see that is involved in how one becomes a believer, can we say conversion? And is empowered, can we say empowered? And equipped, can we say discipled? For continuing the ministry of Jesus. We're continuing our series on Acts. We'd like to speak to you today on the subject, Full Christianity 101. We don't want partial Christianity, imitation Christianity, the essence of Christianity, cafeteria Christianity. We want it all, do we not? Jesus started the church the way he wanted it, and I believe he wants it the way he started it. And so in this chapter, is like the whole picture there. And we just like to look at this picture of what's involved and how one becomes a believer and how one practices their Christianity as well as how one is empowered. You have to read the whole chapter. We're not going to do that. We spoke from this chapter twice earlier today. We hopefully, the Lord willing, we're concluding chapter two. Next week, we go on to chapter three. So stay tuned. If you miss those weeks, you can catch them on the website, on the podcast, or on our app. Full Christianity involves proclamation. First, there is the preaching of the gospel. It begins here. Peter preached the message tailor-made for his crowd. They were Jewish. It was their feast day. He preached a Pentecostal message on the day of Pentecost. It was the anniversary of David's death, so he connected to David's prophecy uh, about the Messiah as well as David's David's grave that was still occupied uh, versus Jesus' empty tomb. He preached to a crowd of Jews from all over the Roman Empire who traveled many miles, many of whom were probably came in for Passover and then stayed 50 days for Pentecost before they headed back home. And here they hear the gospel for the first time. They already, having been in Jerusalem that long, and people spoke publicly. If you've ever been in third world countries, people are outside all the time talking, lots and lots of talking. They they don't live like we now. You know, somebody comes home, pushes the button, goes in their garage, closes the button. They live in their houses like turtles. No, they were friendly people. So they all had heard the story of Jesus. And Peter connects the dots for them with their scriptures, with their history, with their culture. They hear the gospel proclaimed. And it concludes with this convicting phrase, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then they, be, they began to believe. You can't believe something if you don't know something. So they having learned from having heard, they believe what he said. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they asked an important question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's important in evangelism to proclaim the gospel rather than to answer questions people aren't asking. Heard of the street preacher preaching back in the days of the hippies, Jesus is the answer, and the hippie said, dude, what's the question? (laughs) Proclaim the gospel. The gospel includes what the Lord has done for you based on his death, his burial, his resurrection, 
and his ascension. His death is important. He paid for our sins. His burial and resurrection is important. It gives us assurance of eternal life. And the ascension is, is important because he sent back the Holy Spirit. So here they are. They hear the preaching of the gospel. Based on what they heard, they believe that it's, it's relative to them, that it happened, that it's true. And they ask, what shall we do? Romans 10 talks about the importance of preaching. One of the verses in that amazing chapter says, how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? There's another verse in the New Testament that says, God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save some. Not through foolish preaching, but through the foolishness of proclaiming something that somebody doesn't believe in hopes that they will believe. And through the proclamation of that gospel, however you do it, through the written word, through the recorded word, through your life lived out in front of them, people believe and they ask. So all conversion begins with believing. Jesus told Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but shall have everlasting life. It begins with believing. There's no point in baptizing someone that's not a believer, Right? So you proclaim the gospel first. So many people in their evangelistic efforts go out and tell people what to do. Repent! You need to repent. They do need to repent. They really do. The world needs to repent. But they need to ask, what shall I do? They need to be open to what you're telling them. So that's why the preaching of the gospel is important. Do not skip the gospel. Some people get their evangelism totally backwards, and they wind up baptizing unbelievers. And they go home wet saying, boy, that didn't work. Nothing to that Christianity stuff. I tried it. Somebody didn't wait for them to ask questions. Somebody didn't trust the Holy Spirit enough to convince them of the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. Now, here's the explanation. They ask the question, what shall we do? Now, he tells them, repent. That's first. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Turn from your evil ways to the way. Now, some people don't repent. They ask for forgiveness, but nothing in their life changes. That's not repentance. That's maybe remorse, maybe confession of some sorts. It may be tasting God's goodness, but you're not enjoying it. Now, you repent, there will be times that you'll need to repent again because you find yourself going down the old way. You heard the prayer, Lord, I thank you that I haven't sinned today, I haven't cussed, I haven't stolen, I haven't lusted, I haven't done anything wrong, but now I'm about to get out of bed and I need your help. That's repenting in advance, turning to the Lord before the temptation comes. It's important. Then water baptism is commanded. It's not a suggestion. We're commanded to be water baptized. Let every one of you, everyone, can we say all of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Every one of you be immersed. Now, some don't like immersion. They'll say, well, Jerusalem didn't have much water like, like they were 
backwoods hillbillies or something that live without bathing. I mean, you couldn't practice Judaism without lots of water. Archaeology has discovered around the temple site, which is no doubt where this happened, were dozens of mikvahs, which was a pool that a person would immerse himself in for cleansing. Women would do it once a month. Men would do it before festivals. Just go and immerse yourself as, as, a, as a sign of contrition and recognition of God's cleansing in your life. So here's all of these, these baptistries waiting to be used. And that day, 3,000 become believers. What's 3,000 divided by 12? 200, if, the, if just the apostles did it, the 12 of them, they went home tired, didn't they? Baptizing 250 people. Then the Holy Spirit baptism is promised. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, see, there's, there's the commands to repent and be baptized, but then there's the promise. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Jesus had told them earlier in Mark 16, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. If you're baptized without believing, it does no good. And then these signs will follow those that believe. Having believed, there are gifts the Lord has for you now that you've been born again. Now, I grew up in a denomination that was really heavy on being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they try to get unbelievers to speak in tongues. I mean, that's crazy. Because they don't think anything happens when someone repents. Hello, the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. Repentance has always been, repentance and believing, repentance and faith has always been the way man relates to God. It's all through the scriptures. Abraham turned from his evil family to follow the Lord in faith, going where he does not. If that's not repentance and faith, I don't know what it is. Noah turned from the wickedness of the generation in which he lived to obey God and build an ark. That's repentance and faith. He's always related to us through repentance. And nothing has changed. We are just now blessed with an empowerment of the Spirit, a nearness to God the Old Testament never had. It's time for a change. The world needs a change, does it not? The world needs to repent. Politics isn't going to fix our problems. More taxes isn't going to fix our problems. Less taxes, got news for you, is not going to fix our problems. The world needs to repent. And every one of them to be baptized and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They need that. But first, they got to hear the gospel. First, they need to hear about the love of God. That's the task that we have to do. So, We have the proclamation, we have the explanation and answer to the question. Now here's the application. What happened as a result of Acts 2, 38 and 39? New believers were glad to obey. New believers are always glad to obey the Lord. Someone becomes a believer, they start asking, when can I be baptized? It's just normal. 
With many other words, verse 40, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse, can we say perverted, generation. See, it's nothing new. There's always been ridiculous things happening in the world. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Can you imagine being a baby church and suddenly you've got 3,000 new members and the old members are still new themselves? And these new members are from out of town and they don't want to go back home because there's no church back home. So they just stay and stay and stay and stay, begin to live communally. Eight years later, persecution arose. They all scattered and went back home. What did they do? They carried the gospel. The church grew. So this was, this was the amazing birth of the first church, and Christianity is still with us today because of those eight years. Believers mature by being taught. This is the application. They become believers. They're filled with the Spirit. They're baptized. They don't stop there. They continue by being taught. The Word says they continued steadfastly. They not only continued, but they continued steadfastly or intentionally or fervently, not letting anything stop them from the apostles' doctrine or the leader's teaching. The word doctrine sometimes is a bad word to some people. It is when it's false doctrine, but if it's good doctrine, it's teaching. Jesus told them, told his followers, go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to observe everything I commanded. So what were they teaching them? What is the apostles' doctrine? Go and read the Gospels. It's the 70-plus commands of Christ. It's, their, it's his teachings on how to live. You know, don't hate. Don't lust. Give to those that curse you. and Bless those who hurt you. These are, these are not um, the words of some Old Testament prophet. These are, the word, these are the words of God's Word made flesh who came and brought the world a New Testament, a better covenant. And so they're being taught this daily. Look at this. Fellowship and corporate prayer is vital for believers. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, you have to eat, do you not? And in prayers. So they're they're intentional about this. This is not once a month, once a quarter, Christmas and Easter Christianity. This is the real deal. This is full. This is whole Christianity. But there's a warning in the New Testament that there would come a time when people would not bear, would not be able to stand sound teaching, sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, you know, we're all idolaters at heart without Jesus, want to shape God in our, according to their own desires, they heap up for themselves teachers who tickle their ears. Tell me something good. Tell me that you love me. I love to hear good things. Here's a picture of the modern church. Homeboy in the pulpit's about to go because he can't please all those different people. He can't do it. Or they're going to go, they're going to go change churches and hear something they like somewhere else. 
make sure there are enough programs for my kids because I'm not going to disciple them. The church has to do that. Remember how much money I give each week. Don't be stepping on my toes. Don't mention hell. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Please refer to sin as bad choices. Tell me again how much God wants to bless me. He does, but that's not the whole picture. You know, I love the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians because they begin with really encouraging beginnings. Like the first half is all about our identity and the finished works of Christ. But then the second half gets into how we're supposed to live. Oops, let's go somewhere else. So the real church, real intentional about obeying what, what, what the word of God is and what is the results? What is the fruition of this? Unity with purpose met their needs. And don't you know they had a lot of needs? 3,000 folks from out of town plus people that are being saved daily. Some of them weren't from in town. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That's verse 44. They lived communally. Now this was the activity of the Holy Spirit. For Christians to live like this, it takes the grace of God to live together communally. When people have attempted to live like this and create a Christian commune, it's not long before they're buying guns and excommunicating folks. This is not socialism. Socialism is taking from the better off and giving to those that aren't doing so well. No, this is grace giving. This is generosity at work without anyone in charge of it other than the people helping distribute the goods to see that nobody's left out. But it's not by force. It's an honesty thing too. You don't lie about what you're giving. We'll see that in a couple of chapters. But it's, it's an amazing season of the church. It's not socialism. It's not capitalism either. Extreme capitalism is get all you can and can all you get. Now, to, to balance this, look what the church learned. By the time Paul came along, he, learned, he had learned this principle and taught it. Even when we were with you, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So these people were not sitting on their blessed assurances. They were doing stuff. If a person is able-bodied, they need to work. Now, there's a wonderful thing called relief for people that are between jobs. That's awesome. We want to we participate in that. But when the Bible talks about giving to the poor, it's talking about disaster victims, widows, orphans, families that have been abandoned, and, and disaster victims. Storms come through and taken everything. That's where the church shines the brightest. We cannot expect the government to take care of us. That's part of the problem in America is we, we have expected the government to love our neighbors, the government to love the refugees, the government to give to the poor. And when the church sits back and does nothing but plays pat a cake for Jesus, what is that? That's not real Christianity. Government should protect us. They can't fix everything. We've got our part in this thing. 
This practice was daily. It wasn't a once-a-week observant. It wasn't a once-a-month or every other week or when they felt like it. It was daily, and it was in their homes and in public places. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that was the public place that they met, and breaking bread from house to house. They didn't eat in the temple. They ate in their homes, and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity, living in tabernacles. It was like the Feast of Tabernacles all the time. And God blessed them with favor and growth. They were praising God, enjoying this, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It was like an unending camp meeting. It was awesome. It was a church that was alive. We're talking about full Christianity, the real deal, not some offshoot or some hybrid. I saw this and loved it. Progressive Christianity like it's theological soup. Tired of the same old Christianity? Try progressive. Why continue to swallow the stale taste of historic faith when you can try something new and different? Our theology soup is loaded with exciting extra-biblical ingredients and spices from the East to fortify your spiritual journey. Frankly, we don't have what's, we don't know what's in this stuff, but that's what makes it so mysterious and yummy. It's a new age. You know, I'm, this sermon is a call back to the orthodoxy of the faith back to the roots of the original church, expressed in our culture. Sure, they wore sandals. We don't have to wear sandals. I mean, that's dumb. We express our culture with modesty, but with the gospel and the love of Christ and the word of God as he directs us. This kind of Christianity is really popular, but it's not full Christianity. You're worthy of God's love. God wants to make your life what you want it to be. Your happiness is the most important thing. God wants me to be happy. No, God wants us to be holy. In the long run, you will be happy for eternity, but sometimes there's stuff we got to go through. Sometimes there's there's relationships that got to be mended, and we got to go humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. That doesn't make me happy. But the end result makes me happy, does it not? So we got to move beyond Ephesians 2. We got to get into chapter 4, 5, and 6, the latter half of Colossians and the other things. And even the seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation, he does some stern calling to repentance. We can't stay in kindergarten all the time got to move beyond, yes, Jesus loves me, but now Jesus calls me. Yes, Jesus empowers me, but now I'm empowered for a purpose, whatever that is. Now, speaking of full Christianity, full Christianity involves us accepting one another as we are and dealing with one another as we grow. And let's just face the facts. In the church, I'm not speaking about anybody in this church, but in a local church are annoying people. We're people. There's things about us that's weird. And if we're like this towards everybody, 
making room for Jesus with everybody, you're not going to grow because that annoyance can be like sandpaper to make me more like Jesus. That roughness can help make me smooth. It takes a diamond to cut another diamond. Years ago, one of the times Yvette and I were having problems, we went to counseling. The counselor exhorted us that we were not receiving one another as we are. We were trying to change one another. And he shared um, that we needed to receive one another as God's perfect gift just like we are. And we face one another and said, I receive you as God's perfect gift for me, just like you are. I need you just like you are. Force yourself to say those words and make that decision. Then he had us embrace one another. I receive you as God's perfect gift for me. And I'm sure Yvette felt like she was hugging a cactus. But we need each other just like we are if we're going to be whole. Now, if you keep stepping on my toes, I need to say, hey, uh, your shoes are too big or something's going on, brother. There's more room on this sidewalk for two of us or, you know, throwing sand in somebody's face. That's not good. So we have to lovingly confront one another when we hurt one another. And there may be time for making room for Jesus, but not permanently. And this church learned to do that. And in Acts chapter 6, there were some annoyances. We'll cover that on another Sunday. Some annoyances were happening. Some troubles were arising. Some grumbling and murmuring were happening, and they dealt with it. And some mighty ministers were raised up as a result, finding that solution. There's mightiness in you and there's mightiness in the person that annoys you. We need one another, amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as as a church, we would proclaim the gospel and we would be ready to answer questions when people ask. And we would have the explanation ready to help people to repent. Lord, I pray for baptisms. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that needs to be baptized in water, they're a believer, they know you, but they've not obeyed you fully. Lord, may they be convicted of this fact and request water baptism in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for every person here who has not been filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would put a hunger in their heart to receive all that you have for them, Lord. And those of us that have been Spirit-filled, Lord, help us to desire to be filled again and again and again. May we not live lives out of self-sufficiency, And those of us that are able to teach others, help us, Lord, to find ways to do that in our homes and here and in public places, Lord. May there be an exponential multiplication of Bible studies and teaching through the members of this church in Jesus' name. Lord, may we, like those new believers, be glad to obey you as well as to teach and to be taught. Lord, I pray for our prayer meetings, Lord, that there would be a new level of intensity and fervency and a new level of attendees in them in Jesus' name. Lord, let there be a multiplication of prayer meetings in this town, Lord. We pray beyond even our own congregation, our own expression of your church in this community. God, that revival would come to our town like never before, that we would be full expressions of the Christianity given to the church, Lord. May we, like Jude said, Contend for the faith as it was first delivered to the church in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here with needs, 
that you would give us wisdom to help meet those needs in Jesus' name.